And welcome in, everyone, to this very special edition of The Labor Show with J-Doc and Krause, hour number one of the broadcast on this Patriots Day. J-Doc, as we come to the listening audience on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, the next two hours uh, are going to be very powerful, very meaningful. It's going to be a cross-representation of individuals um, who have been affected in great ways by the events that occurred 20 years ago. Yeah, Joe, it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11. That tragic day, it's it's so embedded still in our minds like it happened yesterday. And today we hope to pay homage to those uh, whose lives have been impacted, of course, those who who lost their lives. And we're going to interview some individuals whose lives have been impacted um, so forcefully um, certainly, uh, it's, it's an emotional show, uh, but I'm looking forward to it because these people uh, deserve to be not only heard, but to be remembered. We're going to begin our number one of the show by talking with Steve Aaron, um, part of Friends of Flight 93. Steve was a member of then-Governor Ridge's communications team, and he accompanied the governor to the crash site in Pennsylvania. Before we begin that interview, we'll take a moment of silence for the lives that were lost 20 years ago. And as we come back and we join you out of that moment of silence here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, I'm proud to introduce Steve Aaron, who's going to join me for the uh, next upcoming segment uh, of the Labor Show with J. Doc and Krause. Steve, um, welcome to uh, to the Labor Show here on a Saturday night on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT uh, under the guise of the 20th anniversary uh, of 9-11. And I want to talk and cover a lot of ground with you um, if we can. But first, let me give you the uh, platform, Steve, uh, as we welcome you into the show uh, to just talk about 9-11. You were so you were a part of 9-11 in so many different ways and fast forwarding into Friends of Flight 93. Uh, so there's so much to cover with you. Let me first allow you to have open forum on the station. Well, Joe, thank you so much. It's a pleasure uh, to be joining you and your audience as we uh, commemorate this very solemn occasion of the 20th anniversary of, uh, of September 11th. Um, my story goes back uh, to the day itself. I was uh, privileged to serve as deputy communications director to former Governor Tom Ridge, who you all will recall was governor of Pennsylvania on 9-11. And uh, my day, interestingly enough, started on a golf course uh, on 9-11. We were celebrating a friend's birthday, and there was a group of us that were out uh, teeing off that morning uh, when all of a sudden our our phones and our beepers, we used to wear things like beepers back then, uh, started to go off, and it became apparent that there was something serious developing. And we all, uh, many of us on the golf course worked in the governor's office and we quickly got to the parking lot and uh, compared notes and realized we needed to get ourselves to the state emergency management center, which was only about 20, 25 minutes down the road from where we were. And um, not long after we got back into the emergency operations center, we learned that there was a plane 
um, above Pennsylvania um, that was not tracking where it was supposed to. By this time, um, obviously, the, the planes had already gone into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And um, we soon learned um, that uh, United Flight 93 had crashed uh, near Shanksville, uh, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, fast, fast forward 20 years, um, we're now aware of the just remarkable story of heroism uh, that took place on board uh, Flight 93 with the passengers and crew members who became aware through various phone calls made from the plane um, that you know, three other airplanes had been taken over by terrorists and used as weapons. And uh, they decided in that instant uh, that they weren't going to allow uh, that plane to reach its destination, the U.S. Capitol in, in Washington, as it turns out. And, um, you know, they stormed the cockpit and um, the rest is, is history, as we all know. And um, so that day was, um, was, you know, just getting started for us. And, you know, we quickly realized that, um, you know, we would need to get Governor Ridge back to Harrisburg. He was in Erie, Pennsylvania that day visiting his mom. And um, those who remember 9-11 will recall that the FAA quickly shut down all flights in the United States. All planes had to be grounded. And it took us some time to get uh, allowance to have a state police helicopter fly Governor Ridge back from Erie to Harrisburg, which we did. Um, you know, once we had a chance to, to huddle with the governor and the team, uh, we realized it was going to be important to get him out to Shanksville. Uh, we knew that there were uh, many members of the media who were assembling there and um, needed to wrap our arms around, you know, what the facts were and what was happening out in southwestern Pennsylvania. So uh, several of us uh, climbed on board a Chinook military helicopter and we flew Governor Ridge out to Shanksville uh, just a few hours um, after um, the tragic events. And, um, you know, Governor Ridge will talk about um, and has talked about many times since how he was they, the helicopter flew over the crash site to give him a perspective. And I think he was, you know, anticipating perhaps, you know, seeing what you would normally see when there's a plane crash, crash with a large debris field. But really, all that there was was a, a charred piece of earth um, and not much else. And, um, you know, Governor Ridge also talks about how, you know, one of his lasting memories of that day is all of the first responders who had rushed to the scene um, wanting to help and to save lives, uh, but that they all they could do was just um, just stand by because there were so sadly no lives to be saved. Steve, all 40 on board had perished. Talking with Steve Aaron. Steve, can I ask you to share with our listeners what you saw, how you felt from the seat in that Chinook as you arrived uh, on the crash scene. Well, Joe, it was very interesting because if anybody's been on a Chinook helicopter, you know how loud uh, those helicopters are. And so you cannot have any conversation unless you're wearing a headset, you know, with a microphone, you can't speak to anybody. The governor had such a headset on and was able to communicate with the pilot. Um, we, however, um, did not have that opportunity. And so we were sitting silently. Uh, so that's my, my most lasting memory of that day is just, uh, you know, sitting quietly in that Chinook helicopter and looking out the window and saw the same thing the governor did was just that very large charred piece of earth. And then 
when we landed the helicopter, um, Governor Ridge uh, was briefed uh, on the scene by the state police. Me and my colleagues who worked in the press office, you know, walked over to the area where journalists had gathered and I started to count and there were already 88 TV cameras uh, that had assembled uh, from that region um, waiting to talk to Governor Ridge. And so we worked just to brief him as much as possible and then get him over to that location where he could provide uh, a briefing. And, you know, Joe, I would say I am, you know, another one of my memories of that day is just uh, how proud I was of Governor Ridge, who at a very difficult moment somehow found words of comfort uh, for pe fellow Pennsylvanians who were all struggling to comprehend what had just happened, uh, that our nation had been attacked. We didn't know at that time by whom, whether there would be future attacks, uh, were we vulnerable? And um, I just recall being uh, incredibly proud of, of Governor Ridge and his ability to try to provide some reassurance to Pennsylvania. And um, so we were on site there, you know, perhaps an hour or two. I don't think it was much longer than that, Joe. And then uh, we needed to get Governor Ridge back to Harrisburg to continue to attend to matters of, of the state. And uh, another lasting memory is flying back uh, from the west to the east. You'll recall what a beautiful day it was, um, just an absolute clear sky. And that Chinook helicopter flies with its rear door open. And so sitting quietly, because again, we couldn't talk because of the noise of the helicopter, you know, and seeing this beautiful sunset as we flew back east sun setting to the west um, and just realizing, you know, how much our world had just changed. Um, you know, that we had just been attacked. It was a coordinated effort. Um, little did I know how much uh, my, my professional world would change because just a few days later, Governor Ridge would get the call from President Bush asking him to serve as his Homeland Security Advisor. So my, um, you know, all of our lives obviously were turned upside down uh, by the events of 9-11. And then a few days later, my professional life would change significantly with the news that Governor Ridge would, would again answer the call to serve, uh, to serve our country. Steve, let me ask you this. At, how difficult was it for you to remain in the mode of being on Governor Tom Ridge's communication team and keep at a distance what was actually happening that was affecting how you were feeling personally? It's a great question, Joe. I, I think it's, um, I think it was probably made easier by the fact that I had not seen any video of the towers being hit and coming down or what had happened at the Pentagon because, you know, we had just been working so furiously on the issues involving Pennsylvania that I really didn't have a chance to comprehend, you know, the enormity of the attacks until I had gotten home, you know, later at night, I hadn't had a chance to talk to my wife um, and my you know, I had two young kids at home. And so I, you know, you, you had no, um, all, all you could do was focus on your work because that was what was in front of us. We know that, you know, we knew that governor Ridge would, you know, need to be able to be in these, uh, you know, high stakes encounters with the media, wanting to make sure that he was prepped and briefed appropriately and, and able to do what he needed to do to communicate to Pennsylvanians. And then not until I got home later that night when I was able to actually sit down in front of the TV and, and see what had happened, you know, did the enormity of the attack really sink in. 
Steve Aaron is joining us here on The Labor Show as we come to you on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Steve was a member of then-Governor Tom Ridge's communications team accompanying the governor uh, to the crash site uh, on 9-11 20 years uh, ago. Um, And from that, from the ashes, Friends of Flight 93, a nonprofit group, has a mission, was established to help and support. Steve, talk about that uh, a little bit, the Friends of Flight 93. Thanks, Joe. It's, it's a truly remarkable organization um, that is uh, the official nonprofit partner uh, of the National Park Service, which is the organization that oversees the operation of the, the Flight 93 Memorial uh, near Shanksville. And if any of you who are listening have not had a chance to visit, I would so encourage you uh, to take the trip uh, across the Pennsylvania Turnpike from Philadelphia uh, out to Somerset. Um, the memorial is just stunning. It's um, so beautifully done. And um, you know, Governor Ridge was the co-chair of the national fundraising effort and helped raise funds to construct the memorial. And uh, it really is worth, I think all Americans should see it at some point in time because it does tell the story in a very powerful way. And so the Friends of Flight 93 National Memorial is the official nonprofit partner that really focuses on preserving the story and educating Americans and citizens around the globe uh, about the heroic acts that took place on board Flight 93. And um, so this year, um, the Friends decided to create a new program called the Flight 93 Heroes Award. And the Heroes Award was developed as a way to make sure that we're connecting heroic acts of today with the story and legacy of Flight 93. Um, The fact is there have been 75 million or so Americans who have been born in the last 20 years. And unlike us, Joe, they don't have that point of reference to that day. Mm -hmm. It truly is history. And um, we want to make sure that they're being told that history and that they understand the connection. And so the Heroes Award uh, each year will recognize a heroic act um, that took place in modern day. And um, we're excited to be announcing that uh, that recipient here uh, this week. And uh, we'll have more details on that to come. Uh, but it's, I think, a, a wonderful opportunity for uh, the Friends Board of Directors three of whom are family members of Flight 93. We're very privileged that among those that are on the board of, of the Friends of Flight 93 are, are three, uh, three family members who lost loved ones on board Flight 93. And they've been very much involved in helping us to shape the Heroes Award program along with the leadership of the organization. And I've been very privileged. It's kind of for me coming full circle from having been in Shanksville on 9-11 to now managing the campaign for the Flight 93 Heroes Award for the 20th commemoration and working with the friends of Flight 93. I'd I'd encourage uh, anybody who's interested in learning more to visit uh, flight93friends.org where they can learn more about the story and even make a contribution um, if they feel so moved to do so. Steve Aaron joining us here, uh, then Governor Tom Ridge's communicate uh, on Governor Tom Ridge's communications team, uh, who and he also accompanied the governor to the crash site uh, on 9/11. Steve Aaron, an honor and a pleasure, sir, to spend 17 minutes with you on this Saturday. Thank you so much. 
Joe, the pleasure was mine. Thank you for the opportunity. And back here on hour number one of the Labor Show with J. Doc and Krause as we come to you on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Very special day, J. Doc. Very special broadcast. Tough broadcast. Necessary broadcast. And with that introduction coming out of our interview with Steve Aaron, I toss it over to you, sir. Joe, I'd like to to bring into the broadcast um, an individual whose life was impacted and would Never be the same after that fateful day, 9-11, 20 years ago. Um, and there's actually a, uh, there's, there's some union ties here and, 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 and personal ties. I'd like to bring into the program Julie Ortali. Julie, how are you? I'm well. Thank you guys for having me so much. I really appreciate it. Celebrating September 11th, celebrating the life of my brother, Peter. Um, I, I just thank you guys so much for keeping his memory alive, keeping my family in your thoughts and prayers, it's very much appreciated. Well, um, it's our honor to do so, and I like the way you put that, celebrating Peter's life. Absolutely. Um, I've been writing a story. I went to Penn Charter with Peter for a year, and I knew him uh, pretty well, really well when I went there. And, of course, um, Julie and, and Peter's uncle, uh, Pete McDonough, was a union official at Ironworkers Local 401 with my father. So I write, uh, you know, and we would, oh, for years, uh, since we graduated high school, we'd always, I'd always say hello to Pete, to Peter through Pete McDonough. And, um, and certainly, you know, there were so many lives impacted by this, but I write a story every year called through union ties. And it's about Peter and, uh, this, this interview is long overdue. So, uh, Julie, we, again, we thank you for being with us. Thank uh, you again. Uh, tell us if you will, tell our listeners, um, where Peter worked, uh, at the twin towers. Peter worked in the second tower, the South Tower, on the 84th floor for Eurobrokers Incorporated. He was a bond broker. And Peter went to Duke University. Uh, yep. He went to Penn Charles, an all-American lacrosse player, an incredible human being. Um, yes. What I want people, I want people to know a little bit about him, uh, about his essence. If you would, uh, what would you want people to know about Peter Ortali that they may not know? Peter was a selfless person. He gave everything of himself without expecting anything in return. He always believed in paying it forward. Honestly, with no expectations, doing good deeds for others, um, helping people the way he was helped. Uh, You spoke about Duke University. Peter would have never been able to attend Duke without the aid of financial assistance um, you know, from help of others. Um, he, he just, he had a thirst for knowledge. He wanted to, he put himself a hundred percent in everything he did. I mean, Joe, you know, he, he lived in Australia, in Egypt, Nantucket. I mean, he did the crazy, he was a fishmonger, uh, worked in a cannery, even the, the simplest things. He had a thirst for knowledge, and he wanted to know everything there was to learn of whatever task he was doing. And if he could pay forward that knowledge, he would do it. Um, he, he just had a, a thirst for life. And he, in his 37 years that was cut short, he lived 37 years of uh, his life, and that would be like somebody's full life. He crammed life into those 37 years, that's for sure. And, and you know what's interesting? Because what, what I remember most about Peter is his smile. 
Um, yeah. I mean, he was just uh, an uplifting human being. And, and yeah. I tell the story about when, when he and I uh, went, were on a uh, Penn Charter wrestling team and they called me out. Me and Pete never wrestled before. And so Pete, <laughs> Peter, Peter was sitting next to me. We were the last two to go. Peter pinned his guy in like a minute. Okay. <laughs> And I went out there on the mat, and it was the roughest 40 seconds of my life. <laughs> I went down like a redwood. And when I came off the, off the mat, uh, and, and, I, and I was walking back, we were playing, I, I, we, were, we were wrestling at a school called Gillespie. Pete put his arm around me and said, and told me I did good. <laughs> um, he was a positive guy. He, he was, and, and just a, a tremendous, tremendous human being. Um, one of the things that I'd like to ask, and how is your life been impacted over the last 20 years i know it's that uh, pete's impact was 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 really uh, you know community-wide uh, how yeah. did it impact yourself and the family so you know our lives honestly not to go back to that day but at 903 a.m on september 11th our lives changed forever i mean peter was the ghoul of our family there's five kids my dad had passed away in 1995 so Peter kind of stepped in as, you know, the father figure, the, you know, the patriarch of the family, getting everybody together to celebrate my dad's life and having everybody together for holidays. And moving forward after his loss, I mean, we, we feel it every day. There's 9-11 is every day for us, you know, in a good way, because we have met so many people, Joe, that have touched that he touched their lives. You know, these stories are just come out of, you know, everyday stories, you know, like I I met Peter on a train and, you know, I I remember him just doing random acts of kindness that that was just exemplifies what his character was. He just never expected anything in return. He was always wanting you to pay it forward, you know, in good deeds, helping others, assisting others, whatever. But we have established um, really great things. A scholarship fund at Penn Charter, which is for a scholar athlete, upper school lacrosse player. And again, how I talked about Duke, this is, you know, Peter would have not gone to Penn Charter had it not been for financial assistance. And he, he knew nothing about lacrosse then. And, you know, just his competitiveness, um, his thirst for, you know, learning new things and lacrosse was definitely that. And it took him everywhere in the world. And he took advantage of what was giving to him, what assistance was giving to him. He did not let it go in vain. He took advantage of, you know, the assistance that was given and he traveled, met these amazing people and those amazing people reached out to us, tell stories with Peter. Um, it's just, you know, uh, the, the loss is heavy. It's constant, you know, through holidays and, you know, it's 20 years, but it's been 20 years for us since the first year. You know, it's heavy, it's constant, and the loss is, you know, the magnitude is, you know, tremendous because he was that person. You know, you, you, you mentioned, obviously, with, you know, the scholarship fund um, mm-hmm. and, and the, uh, you know, the, the giving back, trying to make something good out of something that was so tragic. Um, right. uh, tell us a little bit more about the, uh, about the scholarship fund and, and, and who benefits from it because Peter would be so proud. Yeah. So the scholarship is, well, the scholarship at Penn Charter, 
um, it's tuition assistance for an upper school student who exactly like Peter, it, you know, exhibits the qualities of a scholar athlete, somebody that, um, shows leadership both in the classroom and on the playing field. And Peter was a tenacious, you know, athlete and competitor. And it's, uh, hearing stories about, you know, his competitiveness on the field, uh, you know, just hearing from people, his opponents, you know, that said, you know, he was, he was so hard and, you know, just aggressive to play against. But when the game was over, he was like shaking your hand and, you know, laughing and smiling. It was all on the field and same thing for the classroom. His thirst for knowledge was tremendous. He wanted to know everything. When he was at Penn Charter, um, his class traveled to Russia and he literally just dove right into everything about Russia. He wanted to know everything and, you know, he was a political science major at Duke where, you know, well, the Penn Charter scholarship is endowed and then at Duke, his college teammates established the um, endowed scholarship fund at Duke University and it's again Joe the same thing he, Peter would have never been able to go to Duke without uh, a financial assistance scholarship and he, he did not let that go in vain he knew how important it was to receive that and wanted to use every single bit of what was given to him so his thirst for knowledge and, you know, um, being a competitor. And uh, one of the stories that came out of Duke was uh, he had just returned to well, a teammate had returned to campus and Peter had already been like working out at Duke. And the guy had asked him, you know, what he did. And Peter said he had run to the Raleigh dorm airport and back, which was like 30 miles. <laughs> and this was like the first day back on campus. And I see it, you know, like even growing up, uh, you know, I am eight years younger than Peter, so I always wanted to, you know, looking up to my big brother, always wanted to, I am also an athlete, so wanted to be right there with him, but I could never keep up. He was, you know, we would go for a jog and I would run two miles and he would run 22. <laughs> right. Pete was so, light on his, he was light on his feet. One thing that, yes, yes. The, one of the things that, um, so uh, once I left Penn Charter and, 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 and obviously I, I went into the building trades and, and Peter went on to Duke. A slightly different pass. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but the thing I remember the last time I saw them and saw him and it was in the parking lot at the Cotman Mall, and we hadn't mm -hmm. seen each other in years. It wasn't like we hung out or whatever. But you know, whenever we you know whenever we see Uncle Pete, we'd always say hello, and it was and he would say hello back. And and he was one of those people that you didn't have to see. Uh, right. you know, every, every, uh, every day in order to keep that bond and that and yeah. that you know it you know, that, that feeling together. And one of the, you, when you read the Duke university story, it tells you uh, how impactful he was. He, he, the right. magnitude of Pete or Tally touched so many people. And that's why I'm right. so proud to have you on the program. Yeah. And I'll tell you why, because we're celebrating his life. And that's, right. and, and, and that's what we and want. And that's what he would want. He would want that. He would, he would never want us to, I mean, even though, yes, we are sad, he would want us to move forward with the things that he believed in. And he believed so much in paying it forward. Absolutely. I, I can't stress that enough. I mean, you know, giving back, doing good deeds for other people. Like Peter was above all, he was a good guy, like a good guy. And if you needed something, it was done. 
on on um, on nine eleven every year. What is what is your and we we only have about a minute left, but yeah, um, uh, we what, go we go to New York as a family. Um, we go for the the name reading and we meet up with his wife. We have dinner, do a toast again, celebrate his life. That's exactly what he would want a celebration. You know, I went to my wife and I went to the um, memorial about a year, a little over a year and a half ago. And we, I found his name in, you know, it, it, it was in a private room and you couldn't take a picture. And oh, okay. there, there was a guard there. My wife, you know, we, we, we did the best we could, but they came up to us. But um, Julie, uh, I just want to thank you so much yeah. uh, for, for joining thank us you. on the broadcast. I know this is uh, emotional. Yeah. And, so and, I wanted to just say one more thing. Sure. I have my nephew, Peter, is a lacrosse player at Penn Charter now. Oh, wow. Um, and he, he's a 20, 22 commitment to Duke. He'll be playing Duke lacrosse. Awesome. So that's a, that's a pretty, yeah. So it's a pretty exciting legacy you know, to keep it going at Duke. So we are, as a family, super excited for that. Well, be able that. to be back on Duke grounds and celebrating lacrosse players. And Peter, my nephew. That's awesome. Well, what, yeah. uh, what, what's Peter's full name? Uh, Peter Miletus. Uh, Miletus? Yeah, Miletus. All right, shout out to Peter Miletus. Kick party <laughs> at, at Duke like your, like your uncle. Um, yeah. Uh, Julie, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's our pleasure, uh, and and um, obviously uh, our prayers are always with you and and Peter's wife and your entire family. Um, whatever we can do, uh, you you always have a voice here on, on our program. Uh, our thoughts and prayers to Peter Ortali. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks, guys. All yeah. right. Bye. Great, great stuff. Great conversation, J Doc with Julie. Back in a moment. Thank you so much. And back here on hour number one, Jay Doc of The Labor Show, as we broadcast to you on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Very, very special day today, being uh, memorialized, being remembered, being celebrated, um, you know, throughout the world and certainly throughout the country here, Jay Doc. And we've uh, had the uh, incredible opportunity uh, during the opening half hour of the program uh, to speak to two great individuals. I'm going to bring into the show right now uh, on the labor show, uh, retired Philly firefighter uh, Jim Gone is going to uh, join us. And just so I can uh, establish uh, some context uh, for for the listening audience, uh, Jim, uh, and I'll let him tell the story, um, was watching as the horror uh, unfolded on 9-11, uh, watching on his TV, on his television, J-Doc, at home. Uh, and so as the story um, plays itself out, uh, Jim called a firefighter, friend of his, uh, and the two of those individuals uh, drove to ground zero on the day after and then worked search and rescue operations for uh, the entire day. Jim Gone, welcome to the show. We thank you so much on behalf of the entire labor community. We thank you for your heroics and we certainly thank you for spending a few minutes with us today. Thanks, Joe. I, I appreciate what you're saying. Jim, let me ask you, um, to share with us and the listening audience, as you watched the 9-11 attacks unfold on live, live TV, what was your first reaction? Oh, like, like so many other people, just total dis- 
disbelief. And the more, the more I watched, the more I saw was just a, a an overwhelming feeling that that I wanted, I wanted to be there, wanted to help. I I didn't know exactly what what I could do or what my friend Mark and I could do, but we had to do something, and we jumped in the car, and uh, surprisingly, we we had no idea if we were going to actually be able to get into New York after listening to reports of uh, the tunnels and bridges being closed. We were fortunate. We went up we went up through Brooklyn and were able to come over the Manhattan Bridge. And uh, what an incredible what an incredible sight once you got into New York. This the streets that totally deserted except for seeing National Guardsmen armed with rifles and standing on each corner before even getting close to the World Trade Center. Uh, The dust, the dirt, two feet piled on top of cars. Fires with... To me, it was kind of like... A wedding day when people, I mean, to the opposite end, wasn't a pleasant experience. But when people say, oh, my God, our wedding day was, we, we, it was so good. We, we don't even know what happened. It just whizzed by and trying to take in this death and, and destruction. Even today, when I think back, specifics. I, I have a hard time remembering, but I, I guarantee, uh, hopefully, that never will this country see another thing like that again. Jim, do you remember the ride up to New York with your friend Mark, what that was like, the uncertainty, the un- not knowing what to expect? Do you remember any of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, we crossed the Barazano Narrows Bridge, taking the Jersey Turnpike and realizing we're not going to be able to go through the Holland Tunnel or anything like that. We crossed over the Barazano Narrows Bridge. Not a soul on it. Not one single person. Toll taker, no toll takers. And the view of Manhattan, the plume of the dust and the dirt coming up over it. It was incredible. Anyway, we we ended up in, in Brooklyn, stopped at a firehouse there, and the fellows there gave us um, some direction that, that the Manhattan Bridge was still open. It was available for the rescue workers to come in. And uh, both Mark and I, we we weren't saying much of anything to each other. We were just we were just looking around. Jim, let me ask you a question. Um, yes. When you were when that experience, and I, I, I when I think about you guys, it, 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 and they, 
they talk about first responders and they talk about heroics and being heroes. What I, I, I remember that day, all, everybody getting home and trying to get away from everything. Everybody was afraid. What, what, what stuns me and, and, and really impacts me is once again, as a fireman and a firefighter, you're going towards uh, the, the fire. And in that moment, uh, was that was that your that was your instinct number one and number two were you thinking of your fellow firefighters that you knew were there going through um, an incredibly difficult situation? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Thirty six years in the fire department, and there was never a hesitation among myself or people that I worked with to avoid any of the dangers and risk of, of being a firefighter. And honestly, I think pretty much every fire has, every fireman has this thing inside of him that you want to help. You want to help people. But most of all, when uh, close to 3,000 people perished in that, you had to be there. When, when a Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, when I first came on, we, we had uh, the Gulf fire, and in that, eight, eight firefighters died, and that was that was an incredible experience. But in New York, three hundred forty-four firefighters died on that day. I, I still can't comprehend how those guys must have felt losing their friends, their brothers, family members. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to be there. Retired Philly firefighter Jim Gohn joining us here on The Labor Show as we come to you uh, on 9-11 here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Um, Jim, what's the one memory or image that you have that is lasting, maybe hard to talk about? Let let me, I'm sure most of the guests that you're going to have on today are going to talk about the sadness and the destruction, the the incredible scenes. But for me, there there were, if you want to call them bright spots, there were two bright spots that happened that day. When when Mark and I got up to ground zero, we we, uh, entered through a a severely damaged building on the perimeter of, of ground zero. When we came out, the side that where you could where you could see what had happened, first thing I saw were three other Philly firefighters. Guys from uh, Rescue One had come up to help out. Uh, guys, guys like myself, just jumping in their cars and saying, "Hey, I want to go up and help." And seeing those faces, I'll, I'll never forget. I'll never forget some of them: Steve and Murph, Fish, uh, Lieutenant Endicott, 
Yeah, I can, I can still see their faces just as clearly as I, I can see the buildings that, that were damaged. And also, after, after Mark and I, uh, we were up there for a total of 24 hours and really hadn't slept much before that. After we decided that, uh, maybe, maybe it's time to go home and get some rest coming over West Street outside of, of, uh, of the cordoned off zone, ground zero zone. There were ordinary citizens. I shouldn't say ordinary. They were like hero citizens lining that street, handing out water, food, just, just hundreds of people coming together on that day to, they might not have been in there digging, searching or whatever, but they were there to help. And it was, honestly, it was truly the America that we all, we all love. And uh, Joe and Joe, I, I can't tell you how that made me feel. It, it was like, you just wanted to, to stand up and, and salute the, the flag, honest to God. Jim Gohn, retired Philly firefighter, uh, joining us here um, on a very special day. Uh, and being so candid uh, with us, J-Doc, and, and, and with the listening audience, um, Jim, I'll ask you one last question, if you don't mind me intruding on your time for just another 60 seconds. Um, I'd love to know your opinion on why it is so important, you think, that our, that our nation remember this fateful day 20 years later and 20 years forward. I think, I think looking and celebrating this anniversary of if that's the correct word, something that generation after generation should be made aware of. If not the sadness, just, just the whole feeling of human beings coming together and not, not forgetting their fellow man, but coming together, taking a chance, doing what is ever necessary. And that's what, to me, that's what America is all about. Jim Gome, Philly firefighter, American hero, who's left a stamp on this world that will remain forever. Jim, thank you very much, sir, for joining us tonight on our number one of The Labor Show Appreciate it, sir. Thank you, Jim. Uh, thanks for thanks for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it a whole lot. Thanks you for guys. being the, thanks for being the hero that you are, my friend. Words cannot describe our gratitude and uh, your fellow firefighters and first responders that um, you know went towards the fire when everybody else was running away. Thanks, man. You know I appreciate those words. And back here on The Labor Show with J. Doc and Krause as we come to you on Talk Radio 1210.
WPHT. Uh, retired Philly fire, firefighter Jim Gone, J Doc, literally stopped me in my tracks uh, during his interview joining us here uh, as part of our uh, hour number one of the two-hour show um, all about uh, 9-11. We're going to bring in Enrique Rosario, who's going to join us for what will be our final segment here in hour number one. And Enrique brings an interesting perspective to it and a different perspective, long-time uh, friend and follower, correspondent uh, and, in the program, and supporter of the program, uh, Enrique. Uh, thank you so much, man, for taking a few minutes out of your time uh, to join us. It's been a um, for many in, in many ways, Enrique. I'll say this: um, we're forty six minutes into the show, and in many ways, it feels as though. We're nine or 10 hours into this broadcast. Right. Really, really tough stuff. I'd love for you to jump into the conversation uh, and first share with the audience where you were, your first memory t- uh, of what occurred 20 years ago. Okay, so I was at the uh, Newark Immigration Court. Uh, we were in the courtroom when the, the planes uh, hit the, uh, the World Trade Center. And, uh, you know, that was a federal building. It was evacuated. And I was in my car driving back to Philadelphia on the Jersey Turnpike when the second building fell and it was like a, you could see a mushroom cloud in the air, uh, just across the, uh, the Hudson river from New York city. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know whether the whole country was under attack, whether they were going to attack Philadelphia, uh, DC or wherever, you know, cause it was, the news was coming, uh, uh, fast and furious about all that was going on that day. So it was a, a, a moment, a unique moment in American history, and that's where I was. And, and, and having said that, you're in a unique position because you're an, uh, an immigration attorney here in Philadelphia. You, in many ways, people go to you for the American dream and uh, when they want to come to America. What was the um, aftermath uh, of, of that spirit um, it, it, uh, immediately, you know, in, in the days following uh, you know, the, the, the tragedy. Yeah, well, you know, there was the, the emotional reaction that we all had. I think everybody was stunned uh, in this whole country and around the world that the United States could be attacked in that way. Uh, you know, having uh, been attacked by the British in uh, the, the War of 1812 and uh, excluding the Civil War uh, and Pearl Harbor, that's the only other attack by a foreign power, you know, in uh, United States soil in the history of this country. So, you know, we were disgusted and outraged, appalled, angry, and uh, we all felt the same. And all this stuff that we see nowadays about all the division, there was no division. Everybody was together. Hey, let's get these, you know, SOBs. Uh, right. Good <laughs> that, call there. That, would be immediate, that was the immediate response. Now, from a legal standpoint, since I'm an attorney and an immigration attorney, uh, the government responded uh, very quickly, fairly quickly for, for, for governments. Uh, within a, a year, uh, two years, a year and a half, um, they passed the Patriot Act and they passed the Homeland Security Act and the federal government was reorganized uh, with the idea that the the focus was going to be to protect the homeland. And I did a little homework in preparation for this segment. And it's interesting to look at the uh, some of the recommendations that came out of the 9-11 Commission immediately following 9-11. And, you know, the top of the list, of course, was preventing terrorism and then border security and then cybersecurity and then natural disaster response, climate change economic security, election security, uh, transportation security, all the things that have happened since then, even, even biological threats and diseases were listed by the 9-11 commissions as threats to the, uh, 
to the national security of our country in the wake of 9-11. And we've seen in the last 20 years, you know, uh, a mixed bag in terms of our ability to respond to all these potential threats. Um, and, you know, to, to some degree, a lot of, uh, of threats have been foiled without the public knowing about it. On the other hand, you know, we've, we've not done so well. I mean, some of this stuff, I mean, it's amazing to me uh, how many things have happened since then that we were, you know, ill-prepared to, uh, to respond to. It's, in these past 20 years. It's interesting because, you know, being free is not the easiest thing in the world. And some people who would um, use it against us, uh, you utilize uh, the ability to be able to get on an airplane um, and, and, and people's innocence. Um, you know, obviously dealing with people, the American dream, wanting to come to America. Um, right. Where... Where was that impacted uh, at during that time, from especially from an out of the country perspective? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So you know, it, it, I remember you know because I've been in this business long enough before nine eleven uh, to know that you know the focus was amazingly because it's incredible to think it that way. But the, the focus was not on basic defense of the country. I mean, it's incredible. You know, we have how many international airports, how many people coming into this country, how many visas issued. And some of the 9-11 attackers, they had student visas and they were studying, uh, you know, aeronautics of all things uh, at American institutions with visas to do it. You know, so I think, you know, obviously, I think we can all agree that the, the proper focus you know, must be the protection of the homeland. And I think that that's been the effort. Unfortunately, you know, the, the, the scorecard in the past 20 years has been a mixed bag, you know, and we've had some some great successes, I think, that go unpublicized. And then we've had a lot of. Uh, failures, outright failures, and, you know, that have uh, been, you know, uh, seen by everyone. You know, everybody's very concerned about the border security. Everybody's very concerned about uh, further terrorist attacks. We've all been focused on foreign terrorism, and now we're faced with domestic terrorism. You know, um, uh, for example, the pandemic, you know, we were going to have a real ID uh, requirement in this country that all states that issue uh, photo identification, that they would have this real ID. The real ID is like an enhanced security measure where the government can track and, you know, check where you are and so forth based on your driver's license. Well, obviously, you know, there's all kinds of privacy issues, as you say, it's a free country. How can the government, your big brother, be tracking us everywhere we go? But, you know, this whole real ID thing was supposed to start this October, and it's been delayed two years or a year, 19 months as a result of the pandemic. So you see how, you know, one thing, a disease affects, you know, security. Um, and, uh, you know, so everything affects security. And so, you know, we have the cyber uh, security issue. We have, I mean, there's so many, this, it's impossible in, in 10 minutes that we have in the air to explain all the things that go into, you know, national security and immigration and, you know, people coming in and out of this country and the threat that it poses to the American people, you know? And so, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a live subject. It's something that continues to evolve and change. But, you know, I can't believe it was a beautiful autumn day, September 11th. I'll remember it like it was yesterday. And, you know, this thing happened. And it's been 20 years. It's 20 years. It's and we've lived through it all. Enrique Rosario finishing finishing us up here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Enrique, before I let you jump off the line, um, can I ask you to state the um, some of the bullet points in the homework preparation that you did for this program that were released by the commission? Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the things that the uh, 9-11 commission uh, focused on was the need for um, uh, better technology in terms of responding to all these threats. So they instituted the, the biometrics requirements for, you know, uh, what we called fingerprinting in the old days. There's no more fingerprinting. Now it's all on the computer. 
So anybody anywhere in the world that uh, is supposed to be coming in or going out of the United States, you know, they try to get the, the biometric uh, reading from these people and so that we can track folks coming in and out. That was one of the main things that they, they included in, in the Homeland Security Act was this, this, this new biometric uh, initiative, which, you know, again, some mixed results, you know, that was one of the main things. Um, the other things that, uh, that they have tried, to, what the, the 9-11 Commission recommended that they do, uh, is that the, uh, the surveillance, they, they have a FISA court. I don't know if you know the foreign intelligence uh, uh, court that we have, but we have a, a court that nobody knows about that's, you know, uh, basically to deal with any kind of terrorist uh, 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 people or people that prevent, uh, pre- pre- you know, present a threat to uh, as terrorists, you know, we can try them in a court where there's no public transcript, there's no newspaper, there's no press, there's no anything. Uh, so we have that, that whole FISA, uh, you know, uh, institutional system that's been set up as a result of, of the, uh, the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission. Um, there's also critical infrastructure security, which has to do, again, with technology, but also with actual you know, buildings and bridges and other things like that, that they've, you know, in, you know really enhanced, uh, believe it or not. It's, it's a lot different now than it was before 9-11. Uh, they've, uh, there's an enhanced focus on human trafficking, on uh, uh, all kinds of telecommunications and scientific and technology it's issues. Sta- it's, um, stag- it's staggering, yeah. Enrique, it's staggering. Yeah. The yeah. You know, uh, as you said, uh, you know, so eloquently just a few moments ago, we'll never cover everything in the segment. But, um, you know, uh, listen, we appreciate you jumping on. You know that we do. Uh, we appreciate, uh, J-Doc and I appreciate you being a supporter, a big fan of the show, um, and always being there when we need it. And we also appreciate what you do. And as J-Doc put it, uh, J-Doc, Enrique has, uh, not only was he impacted by 9-11, uh, but he's helped so many people that have been before and then after. Yeah, I mean, his perspective is, is, is unbelievable. One of the premier immigration attorneys in our in our region, and he's got a, a finger on on the pulse especially of issues like this so uh, enrique as a correspondent of the show also and a, and a frequent guest obviously we thank you for joining us on this really emotional uh, night and of course we can't wait to have you back on my friend okay thank you guys both of you and thank the uh, the station and uh, all your listeners that uh, listen in regularly i'm, a, I'm a, a faithful listener as well so you know thank you guys and uh you know, let's mark this day and uh, in a solemn way, and let's try to move forward to make this country more safe and better for all of us. Well said. All right, Jay Doc, that's going to do it for our first edition uh, of the two-hour show, hour number one in the books. This is The Labor Show, a 9-11 special.